and they start with this one. Why is there no ocean in the new heaven and earth if God created it and it was good? Well, this question came because last week I talked about the sea, which was that huge, big bronze pool that was at the front of the temple. And uh, I mentioned that in the new heavens and earth there would be no sea, and that's because the sea is a sign of chaos and disorder, and it brought people in Bible times lots of fear. Now you think, hang on a second, God made it, it's good, so why doesn't it make it through to the new heavens and the new earth? Well, because it's a place that humans cannot control and it's a place that causes loss of life, uh, I think for that reason it was considered to be something that wasn't naturally a part of the new heavens and the new earth. And I think it's also related to how people in Bible times saw their cosmology, the way they saw the, the way that everything worked. And the sea was a place of evil, the sea of, it was a place of fear where the monsters were and all that sort of stuff. And so it would have been a sigh of relief to hear that there's no sea. Not so much for us who live on the coast and enjoy going surfing, but we know in the new creation it's going to be really, really good. Question two, why did Jesus say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed? Jesus said this to Thomas. Thomas said, I don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus said, well, stick your fingers there and here. And he then said, ah, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And he's talking about us. I haven't put my hands in Jesus' side and felt the nail marks, but I believe fully, 100%, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you have done the same, then, then you indeed are even more blessed than those who were there with Jesus at the time. How about that? Question three, was Adam made as a young boy or a fully grown man? We can't know for sure, but here's a couple of verses. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And a bit later on in verse 15 of chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. We're not told explicitly, but I suspect that given that he was a person who needed to be a carer of the ground and the land, he probably wasn't a person who needed care himself. He probably was more than likely a fully grown man at that point. Question four, do angels sin? Well, we read this in 2 Peter chapter 2, that God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. That's from 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Uh, it certainly seems that angels can sin or at least have sinned. They, like humans, have a choice. Some chose to rebel against God and uh, the chief of all was, of course, Satan. And others have chosen to remain faithful to God. Do angels have children? Verse 5. Well, in Matthew 22, it says they don't get married. When the dead rise, they will be neither married nor given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. And so because they don't get married, I suspect that means they don't have children. Question 6. What does it mean when we sing, O come to the altar? Uh, we sang that last week. It doesn't mean come to this table because that table is just any table. We could just get the plastic one from over in the hall. Uh, in a sense, we don't have altars anymore as Christians. Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, they would have an altar 
And the altar was the places of, that you do your sacrifices. And I'll talk a bit more about that when we get to the Bible talk in a moment. But the, there's no need for us to keep having sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the one perfect full uh, sacrifice and sufficient sacrifice for the whole world. Uh, in fact, as we read this from Hebrews 9, we read that under the old system... The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We don't need an altar anymore. It's all done for us. So why do we sing, come to the altar? Well, initially when I heard this song, I thought, oh, I just think it's too confusing. And it may still be, but I like the way that it makes it very clear that the altar is now the, the cross. It's where we come to Christ Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us. And so as the song goes, come to the altar, come um, uh, to the precious cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're singing when we're talking about coming to the altar. We're talking about coming to Christ where he was crucified and where he's raised now from the dead and seated with the Father. Question seven. Can you share some practical wisdom and advice about parenting from your experience? Well, I'm happy to give you a little bit of advice. Maybe It's hard for me. To, I don't think it's saying just from my experience and not as a Christian. I've been reading the Bible a long time and I'm very thankful for all I've learned from God's word about parenting. I mean, there's a bunch of different things, but I, I, here's one that I've come up with. See if you find this useful. And that is that parents should love their spouse more than they love their kids. A little bit controversial. You hear people saying, oh, no, I mean, I, you know, I give them the choice. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd love my kids more than my husband or wife. But I don't think that's at all what the Bible's teaching us. You know, when you get to Ephesians and Colossians in the New Testament, there's teaching about husbands and wives first, and then it moves over to the teaching about parents and kids. And in that, husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loved the church. But then when it comes to what fathers are supposed to do to their kids, it doesn't say that fathers are supposed to love them. Now, you are, but it's not the main point. The main point is don't make your kids angry and bring them up with good discipline. And I just think there's enough there to say the, the number one thing that a husband has to do is to love his wife beyond his life, bigger than his life. And then when that is in place, everything should cascade down. And so it's got to be, for me as a father, I've got to love, my, love Jesus more than my wife, and then I've got to love my wife more than my kids. And God willing, that will be the best parenting environment for the kids as well. If you want to hear a whole lot more of really useful wisdom, Tony Willis spoke back in January, and you can listen to his talks online. Uh, his, his talk online, it's great. Why does, question eight, why does God make natural disasters that kill innocent children? Uh, I once did a three-term series on the book of Job, and uh, there's a lot in that, the whole book of the Bible that talks about this. Uh, let me see if I can answer it in a minute or so. It's a big and heavy question, but it is important. And I think it, I like the premise of the question because it's saying God 
doesn't just let things happen. God is sovereign in everything. Otherwise, we can't say, thank you, Lord, that, oops, cancer happened and it ended up all these good things happened. It's like God is in control of everything, absolutely everything. Secondly, we know that God has given humans a freedom of choice. And when he says, okay, you get to make the choice, but you get to wear the responsibility, those two things happen next to each other. And many bad things have happened in our world because of dumb decisions of humans. And to whatever extent humans are involved with climate change, you can see that floods and fires, for example, are a result, in a sense, of human sin. Thirdly, all of creation is groaning because of the initial breakdown in relationships. All those relationships broke down at the start of the Bible. Relationships between humans and God, relationships between humans and humans, and relationships between humans and the environment. And so we are living that out now when we get floods and when we get COVID and all that. Finally, we don't know why specific bad things happen. And we know that it's not because some people are more sinful than others. There was a natural disaster back in Jesus' time. In Luke 13, we read about that. It's called the Tower of Siloam. And anyway, this tower fell, killed a whole lot of people, and people said, Jesus, what's the deal? Did they get wiped out by this tower because they were more sinful? And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, you missed the point. The only thing we can learn about this is that it's a warning that we all must repent. And so when we see natural disasters and we say, why? We say, have you repented? And that's the message. Two to come. Why are the patterns on the bases of the arches above the stage different to each other? You noticed that before? And the answer is, I don't know. But you might know the answer. Dulcie might know the answer. I don't know. You've been around here a lot longer than any of us. Uh, I, I did even read up in the, the official Elsie Stewart history of our church, and I still couldn't find the answer. That was, that's the canonical version of why we are here. Uh, but if you find out the answer, please let me know. Question 10. Finally, is a warden or parish councillor the Anglican equivalent of what the Bible calls an elder? Well, thank you for this question. Let me see if I can give you a brief understanding of how parish council kind of works. It's our last question. So if you're not interested, then see if you can work out the difference between those two things up there. Uh, my, my understanding of the roles of warden and parish councillor is that they're not elders. They're not elders. Uh, they are administrators. They are people who help the minister do the ministry. And they do that in conference with the rector, which means we chat. Uh, There are official job descriptions that are available on the Sydney Diocese website and they're official job descriptions because they're part of a thing called an ordinance. See, our landlord is the Diocese of Sydney and they are the ones who set the rules for how we use this property and and that's why the Archbishop has put me in this job um, and he says the, the rector is the guy who looks after the spiritual welfare of the parish. But to help the minister... Let's have this, this setup of, of, um, of parish councillors and wardens who can help with all the logistics. So together, church can run. And so you see the position description of wardens and parish councillors. It's things like budgeting, collecting and counting and spending the money, keeping the buildings maintained and secure and safe, uh, being the ones who sign the, the, the documents for employing lay staff and a bunch of other things as well. 
And to do that, the parish council is to confer with the minister on, it says here, the initiation, conduct and development of church or parish work, including such matters as are vital to the spiritual welfare of the church or parish, and to make recommendations to the minister or ministry within the parish. That's the official line. Basically, it says that the parish council chats with the minister and recommends stuff to the minister and works together to make sure that ministry happens well here. But according to the landlord, the Diocese of Sydney, this is what the rector's job is. The rector, quote, has general responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the parish and for this purpose has powers, rights and duties in accordance with his licence and authority from the archbishop, end quote. So with all of that, the way that the Anglican Church sees it, right or wrong, is that there's actually only one elder in a parish, and that is the rector of the parish. And that doesn't mean we're not all in ministry together, as we are, but the the power and the responsibility goes to the rector, and the parish council and elders are there to work with the rector to help all the spiritual welfare happen. And so office bearers are not elders, they are administrators, and we love them and we're very thankful for them. 